0: Today's interview is with Orlando Figes, who's Professor of History at Birkbeck and also the author of numerous best-selling books on European, and in particular, Russian, history. His latest book, which has just been published, is The Europeans, which explores the great cultural changes of the 19th century through three remarkable people. The singer Pauline Viado, her husband, the author and connoisseur Louis, and the third member of their love triangle, the acclaimed Russian author Ivan Turgenev. Our editor, Rob Attar, met up with Orlando at his office in Birkbeck to find out more.
3: Why did you choose this particular trio to illustrate the wider theme of your book?
4: Well, they sort of chose me, really. I mean, I had come to this, I think, I mean, it's so long ago that I started on the book, I can barely remember, through Turgenev's letters. Um, He's a wonderful letter writer. And that drew me to Pauline Viardot, the great opera singer, uh, composer, hostess of salons, great mover and shaker of cultural life in nineteenth century Europe and um their relationship is obviously very intriguing. He fell madly in love with her when she came to Petersburg in eighteen forty three and he followed her and her husband Louis Viado, a great art expert connoisseur around Europe and that got me into their story and I began to research the archives in that and then I began to think about this trio as not just artists and cultural practitioners, but as entrepreneurs in an art world that was obviously uh, functioning within a sort of market system. I got interested in Tegainov's economy, in Pauline Viardot's economy, in the whole management of opera issues, Um And so that sort of led me to the big theme of the book. And I just thought this trio served as a very good armature, if you like, to explore how Europe was brought together, I think it's my argument, through its artworks, its literature, its music, um, in a new commercial environment. In other words, it was the market forces of the 19th century, the new technologies, the legal infrastructure of copyright that enabled artists to make a living out of the arts but also enabled publishers and disseminators and impresarios to internationalize the arts in a way that i think really brought europe together so that by the end of the 19th century everyone's effectively reading the same books going to the same theater and opera and listening to the same music or playing it at home in sheet music and buying the same reproductions of the great artworks so that when we think of Europe today as defined by its sort of high culture, if you like, um, that is a product of the 19th century.
3: People often don't like to think of art in purely commercial terms, but is your argument then that actually the financial and commercial changes were crucial to the cultural developments taking place?
4: Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, it was only with the new technologies of the 19th century, with the railways, with the telegraph, with copyright developments enabling people to make money out of the reproduction of art, that the market for the art could be internationalized. I mean, before all of those developments, roughly up until the 1830s, I suppose, there was a market in the arts, but it was localised. It would be around a court or a group of connoisseurs or an academy or um, a society for music. Um, it was only when lithography enabled sheet music to be cheaply p- produced, when the railways enabled the distribution of books and artworks uh, to become economical for Uh, on a mass base, that you find these um, spheres of art becoming not quite globalized, I guess, but certainly internationalized so that an opera being premiered in Milan could then become known very quickly throughout Europe, not by necessarily its performance, but by the publication of its most popular arias. So that was all driven, I think, by the technologies of the 19th century and by the economies, in the sense that it it was economical for publishers, theatre managers, to go for what was familiar and popular. And what was familiar and popular was what was easily accessed through the print media. So there's a sort of virtuous circle that is being formed between mass reproduction of artworks, whether that's through pocket editions of popular literature, or uh, cheap engravings, or sheet music, and the uh, interest of the public in the live performance. Um, So it's a bit, if you like, like today, I guess you hear something on Spotify, and then Spotify tells you where you can hear the live music. Um, so that sort of cycle was being created, and economically becoming a very powerful force because of the ability of impresarios, publishers, and above all the artists themselves, to make money out of the reproduction of, of their work. So, you know, the, the money in opera or the money in art wasn't in the sale of the original, the score, or the or the or the production, or the or the original artwork. It was in the mass reproduction.
3: And we're talking here about. Forms of culture today that I guess are often called high culture. But actually, at the time, would this be the equivalent of what we call like pop music now? Was this percolating down Absolutely. to the masses rather than just the elite?
4: Absolutely. I mean, we think of opera now as a sort of rarefied elite art form. But in the 19th century, it was very popular. And in Italy in particular, there were several hundred opera houses. It was a genuinely popular art form. And if a new, say, Verdi opera came out, Um, Within days of the premiere, there were organ grinders playing the music. You could hear it being played by bands on a bandstand. It was being sung by cafe performers. It was that quick, the dissemination of opera, right down to, yeah, the cafe concert, the tavern, the music hall, and so on. So the way we think today of this sort of great bifurcation between high culture and mass culture didn't really exist at that time in the sense that they were both then feeding off each other. It was really only with the conscious creation of a canon of classical music. The idea of classical music was an invention of the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. It's only at that point that this divide begins to develop. But even after that, high culture remains popular.
3: And when we're talking about Europe at this point, does that embrace all of what we now think of as Europe, or was it only really certain countries that were involved in the cultural transmission?
4: Well, I'm glad you asked, because in a way, you know, you asked about the, the Turgenev-Yardot circle. And one of the other great things for me in t- picking those three was that Louis Villardot was a Frenchman, Pauline Vyardot was, was born in France, but of Spanish descent, and Turgenev is a Russian. And at that time, at the beginning of the 19th century, I guess you could say that Russia and Spain were peripheral to what we think of as the sort of center of Europe at that time, which is Paris. And yet what happens in the 19th century through the development of translation, through the internationalization of all the arts, is that, and above all perhaps through international travel, is that the peripheral countries join the mainstream. And the tegena circle played a very important part in this. So I think probably uh, Pauline was more responsible than anybody for bringing Spanish music into the mainstream of the European repertoire. So if we think of all those French composers of the 1870s, Sanson, uh, Fire, and all the rest of them, uh, bringing in Spanish music to their French classical music, as we call it now, that was largely due, actually, to, to Pauline. Uh, likewise, Turgenev uh, played a crucial role in bringing Russian literature into the European mainstream. So it was Tegenev who first really brought to the attention of the Western European public Tolstoy's War and Peace. And uh, not only did he bring uh, Tolstoy into the European mainstream of, say, dominated by France, but he took Flaubert to Russia. He got Flaubert and Zola translated in Russia. Uh, In fact, Zola's works were published in Russia before they were published in France, many of them. So uh this trio played a very important part in bringing the periphery into the mainstream. And as a result of these developments I think you could say that coming back to your original question that the the concept of what Europe was is is widening broadening. Uh that by 1900 certainly by the time Jagalev comes to Paris with his saison russe St Petersburg is very much part of European civilization in a way that it hadn't been seen when the book begins in the 1830s and 40s.
3: Um, Russia has always had this slightly unusual position, hasn't it, between Europe and Asia, and was that dilemma still going on in the 19th century about which way the country should pivot?
4: Certainly for the Russian intelligentsia, there were divides on that score between, most famously in the polemics, or between the Westernists and the Slavophiles. Turgenev was a great Westernist, and his position was that Russia needed to develop its culture on, on, on the basis of its own character, but only once it had achieved the sort of level of civilization by imbibing everything from Europe. So he was very critical of all those Slavophile, nationalist composers, who he thought were essentially amateurs. So he was quite critical, to begin with, of Mussorgsky and others who were essentially self-taught, and he felt not professional enough. They, in other words, needed to learn from the German masters before building their own national character. But he did later come to see that uh, they had something original to bring. It's just that he believed that originality had to be universal, it had to be part of a universal European tradition. And I think that's essentially what Europe meant for Westernists in Russia, but also for all Europeans in the 19th century. that European culture was essentially a universal culture. That's partly an Enlightenment idea, and today I guess it would be criticized for being neo-imperialist or whatever, in the sense that they thought it was good for the rest of the world. Um, And there is that weakness in it. But uh, it was also an integrating force for the periphery, and a liberating force for many subjugated by foreign cultures. So if you think of Southeastern Europe or the lands under Austro-Hungarian rule where German culture was dominant, being able to access a broader European cosmopolitanism was a liberating force.
3: This era is also known for the rise, certainly by the late 19th century, of nationalism and nationalist forces How does that play off against this idea of a broadening European culture?
4: Very good question. And I think the book is framed by two trajectories, two waves of, on the one hand, cultural cosmopolitanism with the opening of borders, the translation of cultures and the melting pot created, which we call European culture as a result. And on the other hand, a more exclusive form of nationalism, which... I think really only gains force in the last decades of the 19th century. Even, say, German nationalism in the early 19th century is a cosmopolitan force. It's a German identity built on European values and open to the influence of France, Bohemia, so that Weber's de Freischutz, for example, which is often called the first German national opera, is act- it's in fact largely French and Bohemian in its influence. So... That is a cosmopolitan or international sense of the nation, where the nation and the European aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. By the end of the 19th century, yes, uh, there's a sort of reaction against this cultural cosmopolitanism. You see it in particular, for example, in France, where there was, as a result of, I think, largely the result of international copyright. A very vibrant translation culture, so that the French book market was flooded by foreign translations from the 1880s. Um, In particular, Russian translations. For translations from the Russian, very popular in France, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and so on. But also, uh, the Scandinavians were coming. And a lot of French nationalists, conservatives, Many of those who would back the sort of anti-Dreyfus movement saw this as a sort of weakening of the French national character. So there was a, a sort of nationalist backlash to the cosmopolitanism. And those two trajectories, I mean, they overlap. They're not always mutually exclusive. They are increasingly in a state of friction with each other, I think. And in a sense, the story comes to an end with 1914, when political nationalism bursts onto the scene, Um, uh, and and destroys this, as Stefan Zweig would call it, illusion of Europe. But it does so, you know, the eve of 1914 was the high point of European cosmopolitanism. It was the high point of the international transfers crisscrossing across Europe in all of the arts. So Even at the end of my story, 1914, it's it's still two trajectories that are not necessarily exclusive. And and that's one of the elements I wanted to redress to the historiography in in the sense that I think the, the cultural history of 19th century Europe has always been told, really, about the development of nationalism, national identity, cultural nationalism. So it's been handled in terms of the nation state, German culture, French culture. And actually the, the biggest story, which is often forgotten, is about the development of European culture, the internationalism of the arts, and the the sort of yeah, the sort of global culture that we have today was already being brought into existence by the end of the period I'm covering.
3: Three people that your book centres around lived in quite an unusual menage à trois situation. How how did that work? Because, you know, even nowadays, that sounds like quite a difficult situation to navigate. Were all three people happy with that arrangement?
4: It is very difficult to tell how exactly it worked and how happy it was uh, for all three concerned. Um, partly because so much of the evidence has been destroyed. Turgenev did keep diaries, but um, destroyed them. Pauline Viado and Turgenev obviously had a bigger correspondence than the letters that have survived would suggest. And she clearly destroyed some before her death. But I've tried my best to uh, give my interpretation of it on the sources and uh, not to make too many speculations, I think that until the 1860s, when they all retired together, in a sense, to live in Baden-Baden, and lived for the first time together, in the sense that they, Toganev didn't live in the same house. The Villa of the Viardos uh, was about 50 meters away from the little pavilion he he built on land he bought adjoining theirs. From that point onwards, they are living effectively in an open ménage à trois. Uh, but they were doing so in Baden, which was a sort of summer capital of Europe, a holiday city, because the aristocracy-crowned heads of state um, went to Baden for pleasure. So, you know, there were many high-placed people who had kept a mistress there. And it was not a place where people took uh, a sort of um, sanctimonious view. It was a place where people went for pleasure. And that, I think, gave uh, this trio greater freedom to live in a way that people didn't frown upon. Before that, in France, in particular in Paris, it was more difficult. So uh, the Viado household had its salon, and anybody who was anybody in, in 19th-century Europe spent some time at the Viado salon. Um, all the great figures of Paris in the 19th century were habitués of the salon for its music and its conversation. And Tegenev was always there. And although it was known that he was in a romantic relationship with Pauline, because he was always there as a guest, it enabled the sort of uh, appearance of uh, just friendship to be maintained. There were moments when there was gossip, and there is the odd letter from Louis Viardot to Pauline saying, look, I don't really mind what you do, but just don't give grounds for gossip. The relationship between Louis and Turgenev was very good. They were very close friends. They worked together on some publications in translation, and they were great hunting companions. They both loved hunting. Louis was considerably older than Pauline, so perhaps he just had a benign, slightly complacent view about Pauline's uh, admirers. And there were many admirers, so Turgenev wasn't the first. Uh, Berlioz, Guno... Uh, Maurice Sand all fell in love with Pauline. But Tuganev was the great uh, love of her life, and I think, although there were periods when they didn't quite fall apart, but where Tuganev had to keep his distance, uh, particularly in the late 1850s when she gave birth to her son Paul, which was probably Tegenev's son. And he kept his distance at that point to avoid any gossip that might ruin his career. So there were difficult moments, but once they left Paris and settled in Baden, and then even more so when they came back to Paris after a brief stay here in London in the 1870s, they, they effectively were menage-tois. And it was And uh, it was known, and um, nobody really gossiped about it in the circles they moved in. But in the broader circles of society, it it was used against Louis Viardot in particular, because Louis was a radical Republican, a socialist, I think. And he, in the 1870s, stood for uh, election on several occasions in the Paris municipal elections. And at that point, he found uh, this odd domestic situation being used against him. So that in election campaigns people would uh, say that, you know, he was uh he was a sort of pimp for his wife, that his wife was was a prostitute, and all the sort of things you can imagine being said. Um but I don't think at that point they cared anymore, to be honest. I think they lived by their own ethical principles. The people they cared about um knew what was going on. And um They lived under the same roof.
3: What's your take from writing a book on Tegenev? Because he's a a name who's maybe not as famous now as he once was, but at the time was was a real giant of European literature.
4: That's right. Tegenev really was the first of the great Russian writers to be known in the West. He um, was translated into German, English, French from the 1840s and was widely read in the 1850s and 60s, particularly in Germany, where... That many German writers complained that Tagainov was the most popular writer in Germany. And um, I think part of his success was that he wrote in a very Europeanized Russian, which was well and easily translated, I think, in a way that couldn't be said of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, who eclipsed Tagaynev later, as you say, because they were more, they were more exotically Russian, can I say? They were more what the Western audience expected of the Russian writer. So when Turgenev died in 1883, he quite quickly got forgotten. Until that point, he was the major Russian writer. And then very quickly after, although he had great admirers, particularly, for example, um, Henry James and Thomas Mann, uh, by the 1910s, he was not forgotten, but he, he'd definitely been eclipsed by... Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Why did I choose Turgenev? I I love him as a figure. I think he's an absolutely adorable man whose view of the world I largely share, um, whose humane liberalism, Westernism is deeply sympathetic to me, whose views on art and life in general are, are deeply sympathetic. Um, I love his great friend, soulmate, really, Gustave Flaubert, who is very similar to Taganev in terms of temperament and outlook. And I love his writing. And um, I particularly love, I mean, Fathers and Sons is his great novel, I suppose, a novel of ideas set in the 1860s, turmoil and the conflict between generations, which is very relevant to what's going on today in many ways. But I particularly love his his book, and always have loved his book, uh, Sketches from Hunter's Album, which was this deeply humane portrait of rural society, of the serfs, the stupidity and follies of the nobility, which um, miraculously passed the censors in Russia and played a vital role in ending serfdom, uh, for which Russia should always be deeply indebted to to Yanev. So... He's he's a tremendously appealing character, and I think, as I said before, the, the the one thing that really drew me to him and kept me with him is that uh, I think perhaps his greatest work is his letters. Wonderful letter writer, um, and I you know love quoting many of them, uh, particularly his letters to Pauline, which are which are sensational.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: Henry Mayhew wrote um, in his notes on Germany in the 1860s that the further one went south in Europe, it was like travelling back in time. So that by the time one got to Spain, it was like entering the Middle Ages. And that was a fairly common um, Victorian attitude.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Autos used cars. This weekend only, we're having a wheel! Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge! going to make a big splash no other dealer can say they have a whale like this
0: when things sound dull turn up the
3: fun with crunch coming on to pauline viedo i guess the the challenge in her case is that though she was a great singer we don't have her recording so is it hard to appreciate now how famous and how successful she was in her time when we have nothing of her work remaining, or not of her vocal work. It is,
4: yes. I mean, she stopped singing. I mean, she sang in the 1870s, but her last sort of great performance was the premiere of Brahms's Alto Rhapsody in 1869. And Phonogram, obviously, only came into existence in the 1890s. We have a crackly, crackly recording of one of Pauline's greatest pupils, Marianne Brandt, who was a sort of big Wagnerian singer, and sang a similar repertoire to Pauline, and was supposed to have a voice similar to hers. But we only have descriptions of her voice, which had an extraordinary range, which which uh, had a sort of almost guttural element to it um, that lent itself both to great operatic tragedy, but also Spanish gypsy songs. saint said her voice was like bitter oranges. So we can sort of imagine what it would sound like. But Imagining what she meant in the 19th century is much more than saying she was, say, the equivalent of Maria Callas. I mean, that is um, not to compare like with like, in the sense that Pauline was not just a great singer, Uh, and people would travel from all over Europe to hear her give a premiere. So Dickens traveled from London to Paris for the express purpose of seeing Pauline in her greatest role as Orphe in Berlioz's uh, revival of Gluck's opera in 1859. It's that she was a creator of roles. I never really understood what a creator of roles meant in, in opera history. But with Pauline, it's clear what it meant. It meant that she advised the composers on the vocal lines and much more. And created the role because she worked with the composer, and she did that f- not just for Orfe, but for Fides in Meyerbeer's opera Le Prophète, in Gounod's Sappho, in many other operas. And it's not just that she created the role; it's that she was um, she was a, a great influencer. She uh, published songs that she'd written. She transcribed Spanish songs to bring them into the European mainstream. She promoted Spanish composers. Later, uh, with Tegenev's help, Russian composers. She held what was probably the most important salon in Paris for much of the mid-19th century, and then in Baden, and then in London, and so everybody in that world sort of knew her. And so it's not like um, she's just a musician or that music, as it does now, is sort of a world of its own. It's that she was connected with artists, painters like Delacroix, Schaeffer, uh with writers, with people like Dickens, Victor Hugo, Turgenev, from Flaubert, and, and with, obviously, musicians in her own world. So... We tend to think of the arts as, you know, literature, music, the visual arts. She was at the centre of a cultural world where all of these worked together, and they all met in her salon. So to say, you know, what was Pauline Viado, you can't really just say she was a singer or even just a singer and a composer. She was a sort of cultural universe, or the centre of a cultural universe.
3: And did she face any additional challenges by the fact that she was a woman Ah, in the 19th century?
4: Very good question. And I have written about that in one of the chapters. What was, I think, uh, rather extraordinary about Pauline was that she was effectively her own business manager and toured on her own, toured around Europe on her own. And that was quite unusual for a woman at that time. In continental Europe, where the Napoleonic Code was basically in force, um she didn't have the right to sign contracts on her own. So all her early contracts, which we have with the Covent Garden or the Paris Opéra, they all have to be countersigned and approved by her husband. Uh, but uh, Louis Viardot ceased to be her manager. She was when they married. But uh, by the mid-1850s, he's no longer playing that role. And, and Pauline is touring Europe on her own, and she's uh, signing her own contracts, negotiating her own um, uh, her own salaries, and she's acting as stage manager, went on tour quite often. And she's quite a mercenary. People see her as mercenary. I'm not sure she was mercenary. She had this saying that no, never sing for nothing. And indeed, at Chopin's funeral, Chopin was a close personal friend of hers, and she sang at his funeral at the Madeleine in Paris in 1849 and had the gall to collect 2,000 francs as a fee. Everyone else, (laughs) as you might expect of Chopin's friends, gave their services for nothing. But I'm not sure how merciless she really was, uh, but that was certainly her reputation. I think it was more that in her early days uh, on the stage, she was rebuffed. You you can imagine the world of the prima donna. Rosina Stoltz, who was the great singer at the Paris Opera, was was the mistress of Léon Pierre, who was the director of the opera, and so she got all the parts. And uh, so Pauline was, in effect, sort of forced to tour because she was sort of marginalized by rivals. So perhaps because she hadn't got the recognition when she started out, she became a little bit more grasping about money and success later. And I think also probably as a Spaniard in this, or someone of Spanish descent in this French-dominated world, she had to have sort of sharp elbows. So she was quite a steely, entrepreneurial, hard-headed woman, remarkable woman, I think, in many ways. Um, not with that charm, I mean a great um, presence, clearly, for all these men to fall in love with her. But for a woman of that time, you know, if we think of the women in the world of music, the Clara Schumanns and so on, they're quite sort of modest, even mousy figures, if you like. Well, Pauline was nothing of that.
3: Where does Britain fit into, I suppose, both sides of this story in terms of firstly in their lives, but also the wider cultural changes going
4: on? Well, in 1870, Pauline... Uh, Louis and uh, Tegania fled Baden-Baden to come to London because of the Franco-Prussian War. And uh, as French inhabitants of Alsace, clearly life was uncomfortable for them there. And they lived um, in, uh, in Marylebone. And Pauline and uh, Louis had been to London many times before. I don't think they really liked London very much. Uh, Pauline thought it was a bit philistine, I think one could say. Um, Louis uh, looked down his nose at uh, the art world in London, thought that the uh, British should uh, keep away from the visual arts. He he wrote many books with, of museum guides and a, a book that was a sort of international bestseller called The World of Sculpture. And He, he wrote in the preface to that book that he uh, had been unable to include any English works because... There were none worthy of inclusion, so they were typical of the continental Europeans who thought that the English were practical, rather money-minded, uh, slightly philistine people. But at the same time, Britain—what? Well, Britain was a refuge for many continental revolutionaries. In particular, there were no immigration laws in in Britain, nothing to stop anyone coming, and. Um, making revolutionary propaganda here and so uh uh it was a welcoming place for that reason and it was also very very rich obviously london was the most wealthy city in the world certainly in europe and that meant that it was a great importer of all the arts so the london art market was uh important um and it had three opera houses and of uh, vibrant, constant life. So it was a place where the Viardos came very frequently uh, on tours um, and to perform at Covent Garden, and which they saw as a sort of large pot of money. But they never felt very comfortable here. Tugania have quite enjoyed the hunting, in cambridgeshire and in scotland where he went um met robert browning up there on one occasion but he was slightly shocked when he visited tennyson in sussex uh and uh he'd read all tennyson's works in english and he'd read most English literature at that time in English and could talk about it in fluent English. And Tennyson hadn't read any of the continental writers that Tegenev recommended to him and hadn't even read anything by Tegenev. So this sort of insularity of the British uh, was um, something uh, that neither Tegenev nor the uh, uh liked very much and could never settle here for that reason. And I suppose uh, that insularity is another aspect of, of the book because in that chapter when I, I cover the uh, period they spend here, I look in more depth at how the British hold themselves as part of of Europe or not. Um, the British were great, great travellers in Europe. I mean, the mass tourism enabled by the development of the railways was really a British phenomenon more than uh, it was of any other nationality. And yet the British, I think, toured Europe with a sense of moral superiority, particularly to Catholic Europe. They might feel an affinity with North German Protestant Europe, and indeed, because of the royal family, may think very highly of it. And those architects like Pugin, etc., were were, um, developing the Gothic style in in a a way that suggested uh, that they saw the Germans as sort of racially related. But I think the rest of uh, Britain, though, there was a, a sort of attitude towards Europe that Britain was uh, different, um, particular, uh, and superior. I think uh, Henry Mayhew wrote um, in his notes on Germany in the 1860s that the further one went south in Europe, it was like traveling back in time so that by the time one got to Spain, it was like entering the Middle Ages. And that was a fairly common um, Victorian attitude, um, which, uh, as I've tried to argue, is is deceptive, because actually the British were more European than they like to admit to themselves. So we're talking here about myths and stereotypes more than the reality, I think.
3: And you alluded earlier to the Franco-Prussian War and, and what effect that had. In general, how much did the big political events and military events of the period shape the culture? So you obviously had the 1848 revolutions and things like that. Were they having a big impact?
4: Oh yes, very much so. And I think those two events you just mentioned are the other sort of pivotal uh moments of of the story I'm telling. 1848, because it's the probably the first point at which the height of internationalism in Uh, the democratic nationalist movements across Europe. So we think of, you know, young Europe. We think of the Mazzinian movement for national liberation failed across Europe. And so nationalism in Germany and Italy had to take a, or not sure if it had to, but it did take a different course. So it was Cavour and Bismarck that was to make those two countries, respectively, not democratic movements. And the 1870-71 war, because... That, I think, is the moment when political nationalism really gains force and Germany enters as a sort of dominant power in, in, in Europe in a way that not only reconfigures um, political alliances internationally, but also reconfigures the world culturally. So in, in a way to, to, to strengthen cultural nationalism in more, shall we say, Polit, um, ethnically exclusive ways. So in France, you know, the French took a very long time to get over the defeat of 1871. Uh, and so French hostility to Wagner, for example, remained very strong until, well, the 1910s and 20s, really. And it was, you know, very slowly that they incorporated Wagner into the French operatic repertoire. So those two events are are pivotal in this story that I've been telling about these two trajectories, if you like. The cultural cosmopolitanism overlapping with, often in conflict with, but not necessarily mutually exclusive from the political nationalism which is gaining force.
3: And I realize this is probably largely beyond the scope of your book, but how much does the rest of the world intrude into this story, specifically, I guess, the United States and also the European colonies?
4: Yes. Um, Well, they do and they don't. I mean, it's a book about Europe, and it's a book about the cultural integration of Europe and the broadening of Europe, as I think we've discussed, in the sense that countries like Spain and Russia are very much brought into the mainstream of European culture by the end of the 19th century. It's a book about the periphery of Europe in which I include um, the Maghreb, literal, the Ottoman world, um, and in a different sense, America. In that the high culture of these places is to a certain extent Europeanized. So you know, Verdi's Aida is premiered in Cairo in Constantinople, Istanbul, they're building a European-styled opera house. So it's a, it's a sign, if you like, of the power of European culture and of its uh, unifying force that Europe is taken as a model, if you like, by modernizing, westernizing, um, non-European states that want to be like Europe. And so that's part of the story, but it's not central to it. I mean, that would be a different book. I mean, I think it might be a very interesting book, but it's only a sort of subtext, if you like, of, of the story I have to tell. That would be, you know, Europe for export. You know, I don't exclude America or, I, you know, Latin America plays a part in the story, especially since the Viados went there in, the, in their early days. And um, nor do I exclude the, the, the colonies as, a, you know, as something not to be discussed. But it would be a different book if I was to write about how European culture was transformed in those arena.
3: At the moment, here in Britain, we're wrestling with you know, our place in Europe, and that's happening, I suppose, in other countries too. Do you feel that the story you're telling here can give us any pointers for what's going on now?
4: Well, I started this book a long time ago uh, at a time when the idea that Britain could leave the European Union was unthinkable. And uh, the referendum of 2016 took place when I was writing that chapter on the Viardos in London. So I had to tone down some of my Uh, passion um, in the second and third and, I think, fourth and fifth drafts of that particular chapter. Um, And I do think it um, has relevance and perhaps even lessons for where Britain and where Europe is today, because I do believe um, that, you know, European culture has been a unifying force. You know, the EU, since 1970-odd, has been heavily promoting The idea of European culture as what makes Europe special. I think that most people, if they were asked to define what they meant by Europe, would include Beethoven, Goethe, Dickens, Monet, Stravinsky, in that mix. I mean, the idea of Europe and the idea of European high culture is virtually synonymous. And it's always been what the EU has sort of championed as the European idea. The fact that Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is, is the European anthem, is, is a symbol of that association between culture and the idea of Europe. And I think that in Britain, in particular, the, the years that Britain has been a member of the European Union has been a tremendous cultural blossoming in Britain. I mean, if you think back to the 1970s, Britain was culturally fairly homogenous, Uh, food wasn't particularly good, certainly not very cosmopolitan. And since Britain has been a member of the European Union, we've had a tremendous opening up of British culture to international influences. Global influences, Cool Britannia is cosmopolitan. It's a world in which, yes, you can get on the Eurostar and be in Paris for lunch. You can fly easily across Europe. And that sense of connectedness is, I think, part of what makes it exciting to be alive today. And I think that's what people are worried about, partly, that if Britain withdraws from Europe and starts putting up borders, sure, you can still go to Paris. Sure, you can still do that, but it might become more difficult, and the sort of movement of people, the, the fact that we have, you know, I don't know, it feels like a million Italians living in London at the moment, you know, we won't have so many. So that cosmopolitanism is, is part of the richness of our lives, and I think it it is something that came into existence in the 19th century, is really very much what my book has been about, and the book has also been an argument for that as a, some, as something positive that open borders are good for culture. That once you start trying to define your identity, your national identity in exclusive terms, Britain is something different from France and Europe. We want you know our warm beer and cricket and all the rest of it. That sort of inward-looking uh, culture has never been a very a very vibrant force. The great periods of Development in civilization have been periods of high internationalism. The Renaissance and the 19th century I've been writing about are key examples of that. So for culture to thrive, we have to remain open and we have to, we have to cherish the European traditions of, of the 19th century and how much of our 20th century culture has uh, built on that. And so as I've written in the, in, in the book, we must recognise the unifying force of European civilization. and countries who turn their back on that will do so at their peril.
0: That was Orlando 5 The Europeans' Three Lives and the Making of a Cosmopolitan Culture is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. In the US, it's due out next month, published by Metropolitan. Excerpts of the book were read by Hugh Bonneville recently on BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week. Look out for that on the BBC Sounds app if you're in the UK. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when Janet Hartley will be discussing Catherine the Great.